Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Alex Azar, Secretary of Health and Human Services and Chairman of the President's Task Force on the Novel Coronavirus. It was January 31st, 2020. The Trump administration sent its top health officials to the White House press briefing room. I'm going to start by turning things over to Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to discuss the current situation on the novel coronavirus. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Let me give you an update on the current situation of the novel coronavirus. To date, we have confirmed six cases of this novel virus in the United States. Most recent case had no travel history to China, but was a close personal contact of one of the previous cases that we had identified through our aggressive contact tracing. In addition, there are currently 191 individuals that are under investigation. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who would soon become a hero to so many people and a villain to some, would also speak before Azar returned to the podium to finally address why he'd actually called this news conference. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. Beginning at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, February the 2nd, the United States government will implement temporary measures to increase our abilities to detect and contain the coronavirus proactively and aggressively. Six weeks later, six confirmed cases had become more than 1,600. Exponential growth, remember? And then on March 13th, then-President Trump approached a different podium. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. Yeah, so these emergency declarations would give government agencies more resources and flexibility and access to a lot more money to fight this novel and too often deadly infectious disease. Trump also announced a public-private partnership to make more tests. Which will bring additionally 1.4 million tests on board next week. And five million within a month, I doubt we'll need anywhere near that. Our overriding goal is to stop the spread of the virus and to help all Americans who have been impacted by this. Again, we don't want everybody taking this test. It's totally unnecessary. Uh, And this will pass. Uh, This will pass through and uh, we're going to be even stronger for it. Now it's more than three years later. There have been more than 104 million COVID cases and more than 1.1 million COVID deaths. And now Trump's successor, President Joe Biden, 
has planned a big change. While the virus is not gone, thanks to the resilience of the American people and the ingenuity of medicine, we've broken the COVID grip on us. COVID deaths are down by 90 percent. We've saved millions of lives and opened up our country. We opened our country back up. And soon we'll end the public health emergency. So that was President Biden at his State of the Union address in February, and he plans to end the public health emergency related to COVID-19 on May 11th. He ended the national emergency, the one that you heard Trump announce back in March of 2020. He ended that earlier than he really expected to in April after Congress passed a GOP-led bill to do so. So the federal emergencies around COVID are ending. But the pandemic isn't over. What does this all mean? What does this mean for you? From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Back in January 2021, I got to know an expert I'd been following on Instagram and Facebook for a while when she joined us for an episode of Petri Dish. She's an epidemiologist, a researcher, and a professor with a master's degree in public health and a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics. Her name is Caitlin Jettelina, but she's more readily known to many as your local epidemiologist. That's the name of her Substack newsletter, where she breaks down many of the tough concepts we've been forced to learn about over the last three years into simple, comprehensible English. So when the White House announced that it would be ending the public health emergency, Dr. Jettelina was one of the first people I wanted to talk to about it. What would this change mean to us, regular folks? Also, if the pandemic isn't over... Why is the emergency ending? Take it away, Dr. Jadalina. Yeah, so the health emergency is ending. I will say, though, it's been really confusing because there's actually five emergencies or declarations that we've used in the United States throughout the pandemic. And each of those five are ending at different times and have different implications, making it really quite confusing for the average person to understand what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. So, in fact, the national emergency ended a month earlier than President Biden wanted it to. That ended April 10th. And another thing that's already changed is the expansion of health insurance coverage for Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program enrollees. That's CHIP, the Kids Insurance Program. They were linked to the public health emergency, but they were delinked by Congress late last year. That allowed states to start removing people as of April 1st. Yeah, that's right. And so that coverage is dropping off. And I think it's estimated to be about for about 14 million Americans, which I think has been so optimally communicated to those Americans and will have implications for their care. This change comes after a pretty hopeful period in which the percentage of uninsured people in the United States hit a historic low of 8% in 2022. 
Now, May 11th, the public health emergency is ending, which is another bucket in those five declarations. And that public health emergency ending has other implications for people on the ground. Like what? I think the biggest change people are going to see is data reporting coming from the CDC. And what is going to change and how is not straightforward yet. I think they're still actually working on it in the background, but we can see, we can expect different frequency of reporting hospitalizations. For example, it won't be on a daily basis, maybe weekly, maybe monthly. We're going to have a lot less indication of vaccine coverage um, through the data. And all of the reasons why the data is being impacted with this public health emergency is because before the pandemic, well, and right now, we have a very decentralized data infrastructure in the United States that local health departments and states own that data. And so what they had to do throughout the pandemic was um, CDC had to get permission from each local jurisdiction and states to, one, get the data and then also broadcast it for a more national perspective. And a lot of those agreements end with the public health emergency um, for some states and for some local jurisdictions. So all of that to say, I think we're going to have a little bit of, we're going to have more fragmented picture of what's going on with this virus. And we're not going to have that level of detail like we've all been accustomed to for the past three years. This means that we'll be flying a little bit more blind about, you know, where this virus is and what it's doing than we've gotten used to. Though Jetalina says things have been a bit murky for a while around some of the metrics we relied on during the worst periods of the pandemic. For example, case data right now is just not accurate anymore because people are using a lot more at-home antigen testing that's not reported And also a lot more people are having asymptomatic or very mild cases of of disease. And so they're not even testing. They're kind of treating this as a cold now. And so some of these, I think, that we're going to be seeing changes linked to the public health emergency. But also some of it is just because we're also in a very different place than we were three years ago with how people are testing, where people are testing, et cetera. And the test positivity rate, also known as the TPR, was a clear metric for a long time that signaled how prevalent the virus was in a given community. States, localities, and individuals made decisions on things like whether to wear a mask or advise or even mandate masking or encourage people to stay home in their COVID bubbles based on this measurement, the positivity rate. Now, positivity rates are kind of meaningless. Yeah, I would not go off of um, a TPR or case data right now. I just wouldn't. The one thing that I think we can leverage as individuals is wastewater data. The problem is, and this is a big problem, is that only if you know certain jurisdictions have wastewater surveillance. This is we do not have a good coverage that every single American can look at how the virus is transmitting in their area. And so for those people without wastewater surveillance, they're really left to a hospitalization data, which is suboptimal because it's also delayed. It's one delayed and also severe disease is becoming less common. And so it's not necessarily the right tool to show transmission in an area. 
And this blindness about where COVID may be surging has broader implications and risks. Well, one risk is knowing who needs a vaccine and where um, for targeted public health campaigns. Another risk I think there is is just our general understanding of how well vaccines are working has been suboptimal throughout the pandemic. And now it's going to be even more suboptimal, which is um, sad. I think the bigger implications are we're going back to basically a pre-pandemic era and we need to figure out better data infrastructure and data sharing techniques so it can be turned on really quickly during an emergency. And I'm afraid that if, you know, some states or local jurisdictions stop sharing that data, then we're going to have to go through this process all over again with the next virus and continue this cycle of panic and neglect, which hampers our ability to save lives. The New York Times and Johns Hopkins University both stopped collecting and sharing regularly updated COVID information in March. So hobbling the CDC's ability to collect and share data is another body blow to those who remain at high risk for serious illness and death should they be infected with COVID, as well as the millions already struggling with long COVID. This blindness to what's happening with the virus further limits those people's ability to make informed decisions regarding their health. Should they go out? Should they let visitors into their homes? How should they conduct their social lives? How should they conduct their work lives? Should they work at home? Should they go into the office? Do they visit their families? This all becomes exponentially more difficult for them as the rest of the country sort of moves on. Up next, the public health emergency gave Americans broad access to things like COVID tests and treatments. Are we about to get cut off? Some of these tools are and some of them are not connected to the public health emergency. We'll talk more about that when Petri Dish continues. Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. Welcome back to Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. When then-President Trump announced the national COVID emergency that ended April 10th of this year, he also announced a public-private partnership to get more tests made and on the market. Today, we're announcing a new partnership with private sector to vastly increase and accelerate our capacity to test for the coronavirus. We want to make sure that those who need a test can get a test very safely, quickly, and conveniently. But we don't want people to take a test if, if we feel that they shouldn't be doing it. And we don't want everyone running out and taking only if you have certain symptoms. Over the ensuing three years, as we all remember probably too clearly, more than 100 million Americans would have certain symptoms and would test positive for COVID-19. We've had access to free tests for years now, and we've even been able to order free rapid antigen tests from the post office to be delivered to our houses. 
the end of the public health emergency won't directly impact that. But according to your local epidemiologist, Caitlin Jettelina, it's a while supplies last situation. Antigen test supply is going to be impacted, but not necessarily because of the PHE. It's dependent on congressional budget. This means that, you know, the industry is probably unwilling to produce a surplus of tests because the future demand is unknown. What it means is that we, while we have a stockpiled antigen tests right now for the public, it's not clear when this supply, this free supply will run out. We think maybe by the end of the year. And once at the end of the year, then we're either not going to have availability of tests or people are going to have to pay for them because they've been commercialized. One thing that is connected to the PHE with tests is that it requires health insurers to reimburse for up to eight antigen tests per person per month. And after May, insurers um, will be able to choose, health insurance companies will be able to choose whether they can reimburse for their tests or not. And I haven't heard of word either way yet. And according to KFF, people with traditional Medicare will no longer receive free at-home tests. For those on Medicaid, at-home tests will be covered at no cost through September 2024. KFF also notes that a temporary Medicaid coverage option adopted by 15 states has given uninsured people access to COVID-19 testing services, including at-home tests without cost sharing. KFF says that program will also end with a public health emergency. So what about treatments, specifically Paxlovid? This is the supply that's safest right now because it has, we have the largest stockpile. In other words, the U.S. bought a ton of Paxlovid from Pfizer and individuals just haven't been using it at the rate that the federal government kind of anticipated it. And so we'll probably have enough Paxlovid in, until 2024. But once that stockpile is gone, it will be privatized, meaning Pfizer determines the price and that's the price that individuals pay at the pharmacy. And it's also dependent on whether health insurance decides to cover it or not. Okay, vaccines. COVID has decided to regularly mutate, making boosters necessary. Many experts expect even when the pandemic does end, we'll need a booster every year, like the flu shot. So what does the end of the public health emergency mean for our access to free vaccines? Well, remember how Dr. Jettelina said there have been five different declared emergencies related to the pandemic? One other of these five buckets is the FDA emergency, and that's not ending. Um, that means that COVID-19 vaccines will still be available. But what I always say is available is different than accessible. And so these vaccines will be covered by the government until the stockpile drives up. And then after that, insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, private insurance will cover vaccines. The only really big true challenge with vaccines is 8% of Americans are uninsured. And CDC is going to be working with pharmacies in grant contracts through 2024 so uninsured can still get free vaccines. So a ton of moving parts. It's super confusing. And we'll see how this all unfolds. The FDA emergency to which Shetalina refers is the one that allowed emergency use authorizations for the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and Novavax COVID vaccines. I'm sure you remember that. 
and the agency tweeted on January 31st that, quote, existing emergency use authorizations for products will remain in effect and the agency may continue to issue new EUAs going forward when criteria for issuance are met. Now, we've heard while supplies last a few times from Jetalina during this conversation, but she thinks this is kind of a good thing that it will slow the impact of the end of the public health emergency. I think it'll be slow just because of these stockpiles that we have. I think if everything was dropping off on May 11th, I would be very, very nervous. But what I think is going to happen is we're going to like slowly see these transitions on tools dropping off of our tool belt as time progresses. I'm most worried about the lack of communication to the uninsured that were covered by this gap policy and who they are and what they need to do to get coverage, because I think that's going to be a surprise to a lot of people. In fact, lack of communication and worse, poor communication have become a major concern for Jetalina over the course of the pandemic. Yeah, I've talked a lot about this because I'm increasingly frustrated that in all of the pandemic preparedness conversations I'm a part of right now, it's not coming to the surface as something we need to fix. A lot of people are focused on how do we get vaccines faster? How do we develop vaccines faster? How do we get better surveillance? How do we um, determine spillover events? But you know what? None of that matters if the public's not going to do anything about it. And so I think what needs to happen is that communication, crisis communication, knowledge translation has to be a core component of pandemic preparedness and response and taken as seriously as the other things. And that I haven't seen that happen yet. And so I feel like I'm yelling on the top of my little hill that this needs to be looked at. Um, And I hope eventually it is, but it, it just... It just hasn't been part of the conversation, and I'm trying to change that. You know, I'm sure a lot of people point to the fact that so many people continue to die every day of COVID. According to the CDC, 1,160 died the week ending April 19th. That's the most recent week for which we have information. They point to the fact that this virus is still unpredictable and the pandemic isn't over. And, you know, long COVID is a growing problem to say it's too soon, they think, to end these emergencies. Yeah, and I hear them. I hear their frustration. I think that given what we've seen throughout the last winter, I don't think we're in a full-blown emergency anymore. One epidemiologist told me that if we're always in an emergency, we're never in an emergency But that doesn't mean that we are, one, our work is done, or two, that we really need to figure out how better to support our population um, so they do have, we never, we don't have to rely on emergencies all the time for basic healthcare needs or access um, to preventative care. And that is a bigger, huge question that we all need to figure out as as a community, as a nation. But I think... I'm comfortable with the public health emergency ending. I think we're going to be in this weird transition stage, though, that we're not in an emergency and we're not in this endemic state. We're somewhere in the middle, um, making a lot of this pretty confusing to follow. 
According to Columbia University, a disease is endemic when it is consistently present but limited to a particular region, making the disease spread and rates predictable. Now, COVID is consistently present, but it is not limited to a particular region. It's still everywhere, and disease spread and rates are not yet predictable. We don't know when the next surge will be, or even if there will be one. So COVID is not yet endemic. But the Delta surge and the Omicron surge are thankfully well in our rear view. So I asked Jetalina what we should call this limbo-like place that we're in right now. The awkward phase between an emergency and an endemic is, we don't have a word in epidemiology, which is kind of crazy. I think the flu people at WHO call it a transition phase, which I kind of like because it is a transition phase, that we're going to continue to see waves, hopefully not tsunamis, but waves, and we're going to continue to see this virus change. And it's going to probably take a few years, maybe even a decade, to see seasonal patterns, predictable patterns of SARS-CoV-2, which, to me at least, would define endemic phase is more the predictability of it. We will not know if we're in an endemic phase until it's already passed because it all depends on um, consistency. And so I continue to approach this virus with humility because that is the one thing that it's taught me over the past three years. Thank you, Dr. Caitlin Jettelina, your local epidemiologist. So when the public health emergency ends May 11th, we probably won't feel much of a difference. But as national stockpiles of tests, treatments, and vaccines deplete, we surely will. The Biden administration says there's no more money for any of this stuff. Congress would have to pony up some cash, but it has clearly signaled it's not going to do that, at least not this Congress, not now. So over time, you and I will bear more of the cost of fighting COVID as individuals. If the virus continues to move toward a more endemic status, that might be fine. Perhaps then resources used to fight the virus could move to the increasing challenge of long COVID. But like Dr. Jetalina, I continue to approach this virus with humility. Like she says, we'll see. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by TPR News Director Dan Katz, Jacob Rosati, and me. Jacob Rosati also composed all the music and created the sound design on this show. The audio editing was done by Bennett Smith. Petri Dish is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>